a Paris suburb, flames lick away at stacks of automobile tires, sending dense clouds of smoke swirling over the French capital. Seventeen alarms are sounded for the spectacular blaze, which still rages out of control hours after it was discovered. Dozens of firemen are overcome by the thick, choking fumes, but almost miraculously, no one is killed. Thousands of tires go up in ugly, billowing smoke, and damage is estimated at 20 million francs. At a steel mill in the tiny industrial town of Esch in Luxembourg, the six Schumann clan nations mark an historic milestone in European history. Francis Jean Monnet sets the Luxembourg blast furnace in operation, and a molten stream of French iron ore, Belgian limestone, and German coke, watched over by Italian labor, pours out before officials of the Coal and Steel Authority. Monet, authority president, sees a dream of centuries burst into searing reality. Now he receives a mold of the product of six nations bearing a single word, Europe. The six are banded together for 50 years in a customs-free, quota-free coal and steel market. And as Monet explains... There will no longer be German coal or French steel. There will be European coal and European steel moving freely through all our countries as if they were one nation of 150 million consumers, like the United States. Mrs. Claire Booth Luce arrives at the Quirinale Palace in Rome to present her credentials as United States Ambassador to Italy. She's accompanied by her publisher husband, Henry Luce. Mrs. Luce, who holds the most important diplomatic post ever given an American woman, is introduced to Italian officials and army representatives. These ceremonies had to be postponed because of the illness of the 79-year-old Italian president, Luigi Ainaudi, who now officially welcomes the new American ambassador. Greg Valee, who recently resigned as Secretary General of the United Nations, sails from New York for his home in Norway. He is accompanied by his wife and younger daughter. But anxious to see more of the American scene, his older daughter, Guri, chooses to remain in the United States. Canada's Prime Minister, Saint Laurent, arrives in Washington for top-level talks. Vice President Nixon is on hand to greet him, along with Secretary of State John Foster Dulles. Among the subjects he discusses during his two-day visit are United States trade restrictions on Canadian agricultural products. Prior to a White House luncheon in his honor, the Canadian Prime Minister confers with President Eisenhower. They talk of the prospects for peace in Korea and the much-discussed proposal for construction of a St. Lawrence Seaway. Several hours later, making his first visit to New York City as president, Ike's train rolls into Pennsylvania Station, where he is greeted by Governor Dewey. During his whirlwind three-hour stay in the city, President Eisenhower addresses a Republican victory dinner and declares any peace in Korea must be both fair to the Korean people and to the communist prisoners of war held by the United Nations. Baghdad, 18-year-old Faisal II is officially proclaimed King of Iraq. Delegates from 33 nations attend the coronation, including the Duke of Gloucester, representing Queen Elizabeth. Faisal became king 15 years ago when his father was killed in an automobile accident, but he had to reach manhood before ascending the throne. Now, bearing the royal scepter, Faisal, who was educated in England, becomes the ruler of Iraq, 
on the very same day that his 18-year-old cousin, Hussein, is proclaimed King of Jordan. Two youths now rule countries of ancient Arab heritage. In the Union of South Africa, the Nationalist Party of Prime Minister Daniel F. Malan has been returned to power in the recent elections. The new cabinet is pledged to a policy of uncompromising white supremacy. Malan has also promised to strip the Supreme Court of its power to pass on the constitutionality of any laws passed by Parliament, which means government by party. With increased majority in Parliament, the Nationalists will continue segregation for five more years. Nairobi, the city of suspense, restless and uneasy in the heart of the Mau Mau territory in troubled Kenya colony. Where death can strike in an instant from the shadows, a loaded revolver in a man or a woman's belt tells the stark peril of everyday living in the shadow of the seething Mau Mau menace. Windows are locked and mothers read bedtime stories with guns by their sides. Day after day, suspected members of the terrorist society, which has sworn to drive the white man out of Africa, are rounded up, searched and grilled. British compounds, the suspected Mau Mau's defy their captors, fearful of the mutilation and death meted out by the gangs to informers. A cloud of suspicion hangs over all in Kenya, and until the Mau Mau are destroyed, all must suffer. Meet Captain Joseph McConnell, Jr. of Dover, New Hampshire, member of an exclusive Air Force club of double jet aces. Bagging his 10th red MiG in the skies over Korea, McConnell becomes the sixth American to reach that coveted goal. Ready for another crack at the communists, he checks out in his F-86 Sabre jet. Now remarkable gun camera films reveal how McConnell and other cracked United Nations airmen sweep the skies clean of enemy MiGs.